I think it's always important to tell the truth because that is what trust, especially within a family unit, is built upon. Okay, so ultimately navigating loss is an opportunity for a family to become stronger or any of our relationships to become stronger. It's through the difficult parts of life that the most glue is built between us. It's what bonds us together. It's what instantly connects us. But it feels really uncomfortable. That was Colin Perry. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. Colin Perry is an author, speaker, founder of the School of American Thanatology, and one of America's leading experts on death, dying, and grief. I've wanted to talk with Cole ever since hearing her on Ali Ward's podcast, Ologies, which you should definitely check out, by the way, because it's awesome. Cole has dedicated her life to helping people navigate some of the hardest times that we all inevitably will have to grapple with. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Colin Perry and find it really useful, because I certainly did. Colin Perry, welcome to the show. It's so good to finally meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I'm excited to get to talk about my favorite subject ever, death, dying, grief and loss. (laughs) The work you've been doing is so impressive and needed. Like I've been a, a massive fan for quite some time now. And I think that I totally agree with you, Cole, that, you know, our lives are enriched when we can nurture a relationship with death, dying, grief, and loss. But why do you think there's such a reluctance in society to talk about these things more readily? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think your listeners are probably like, yeah, that's me. I don't really want to talk about it. So for my view as a thanatologist, and thanatology is the study of death, dying, grief, and loss, my viewpoint is first, we confuse being uncomfortable about death with being uncomfortable about grief. And They're totally different things. The death, I would argue people are more comfortable with. Um, And my perspective as an American, we're surrounded by death. It's all over the news. It's like centerpieces of our TV shows. True crime is like this huge genre here in the U.S. So we're surrounded by death constantly. Um, When we look away is when the grief shows up. And in my view, the discomfort we have is that nobody feels really comfortable knowing how to just coexist with somebody else's grief. We don't know what to say. We are afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're just kind of so we just a lot of people end up just kind of shrinking back and hoping that it just passes by Um, because there's really not great models out there for like what to do or how to do it. And there's not ever going to be because everybody's loss, everybody's grief is unique to them and unique to their life experience and the accumulation of all of their experiences with death and grief they've had their whole life. So it's difficult for modern society because it does not fit into a neat little box. When you were saying that, it really sort of resonated with me, Cole, because I, I remember distinctly, like I think I was about 10 And a friend of mine at school had basically got leukemia and eventually passed away Mm -hmm. or died. And I just did not know how to handle it. And and I'm so shameful. And I I felt so much shame after he died Mm -hmm. because I actually retracted from him and Mm -hmm. I wasn't there to sort of support him. And I just had no idea how to do that. 
And and I remember watching some other friends playing tennis with him, and I was like, oh man, I just couldn't figure out or pluck up the courage, I guess, to confront or just be there. And I just, to this day, still feel so bad that I just didn't hang out with him more. Yeah. Um, what was his first name? Stephen. Stephen. I always like to say the names of, of the dead. Um, so when you were going through this, you were 10, right? Yeah, I think so. It was okay. about then, yeah. Have you thought about Stephen throughout your entire life growing up and into adulthood? Just in, like it would pop up every now and then. Like I distinctly remember the Christmas about a year later, mm-hmm. right, just breaking down and crying because I just, you know, felt so, yeah, so I guess um, I just remembered him so vividly. And I think that's when it sort of hit me that I'd sort yeah. of missed this golden opportunity and, and why him? You know, I started asking all those yes. big questions, but I was just sat on my own in my bedroom Christmas morning, you know, crying about a friend that died over a year ago. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge loss and it's a huge impact. And first of all, to navigate something like that at the age of 10, I mean, I think most of my colleagues would like it's understood. Most adults don't know what to how to handle it themselves, let alone how to guide your kids or your class, your students through a loss of, of a young person like that, a loss of a child. That's one of those losses that's so profound. Um Sometimes people call them out of order losses, like children are supposed to die after their parents, not before, <laughs> you know, and children yeah. are supposed yeah, to yeah. die when they're old adults. Children are not, we're not supposed to die when we're kids. So when this stuff happens out of order, it's even harder and it's more complex um, and struggling to know what to say makes total sense, right? Because it's understood that we don't want you to die. And it's understood that I'm upset that you're going to die. But it feels weird to say that because it's like, duh, right? It's like, uh, like, of course, obviously. So then it's like, well, how do I find something to say that is meaningful or comfortable? And um, that also changes person to person. So for example, like, um, if Stephen was religious, right? Like saying things that are religious could be a comfort to somebody that was religious facing their own death. But to somebody who's not religious, and if you're saying religious things to them, that's going to make them uncomfortable. So it's hard. There is no template for something like this. Um, I think, and this is my advice that I give to anybody that's ever, uh, people ask me, they're like, okay, what do I say to my friend whose husband died or my friend's daughter died or whoever dies whenever doesn't matter who it is. The thing that you're trying to do as a friend, as a family member, as somebody who is like, I'm going to try to support you in your loss. You're not trying to change the grief. You're not trying to help it move really anywhere. Only we can move our own grief. What we do as supporters, our job is to pick it up and look at it together. And this might sound kind of corny, but um, okay, a lot of people have coffee tables in their houses and people will pick like objects to just like put out on the coffee table that's meant to be just like looked at. It might be like a coffee table book. It might be like some bowl of balls that we put out and we set it there and it's like a decor piece. So grief is, we, we, we want to treat our friends grief like it's something that they've put out on their coffee table. So you're over at their house and you're going to say, oh my gosh, look at this coffee table book. You're going to pick up the coffee table book, which is their grief. And you're going to say, oh, what is this about? 
how is your how's your grief today? What is it like for you? You want to look at it together. Grief is something that just needs to be witnessed, just needs to be seen, just needs to be held. And that's it. And then you set it back down on the coffee table and start talking about sports or start talking about what's for dinner or whatever it is. Um, and that is always my advice for how how do you like, quote, support somebody through a loss? You just need to pick up the grief and look at it together. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it sounds so simple now when you say it like that. <laughs> and I, I guess it's like, how do you model that then? I mean, what would it be from a, say, a parent's perspective? Like, how do you suggest that parents sort of talk this thing through with kids so that they can actually do that when the time comes? I mean, is it something that you wait until it actually is on your doorstep or is there something that you can you recommend that we're talking about every day or we we bring into conversation every now and then or what what are the sort of suggestions that you have Cole Yeah so um with kids first of all parents you know your kids best period so just because somebody on some podcast says something if it doesn't feel right to you don't do it you you know your kids best so I always like to say that up front um with kids kids learn first and foremost from their parents, like what bad words are. And sometimes we make the word death a word that we whisper, just like a swear word. So kids pick up on that. So if you talk about death, dying and grief, but you drop your voice when you do it, you're teaching them, oh, we have to be scared, I guess. I guess this is scared, I guess, like, because we're, you know, you, you should you should be afraid to say a bad word when you're a kid, right? So if mom and dad or whatever, whispering the word, he died. <gasps> Something to be scared of. So first, as parents, I'd say, you need to try to not um, talk about this very normal thing, death, dying, grief, and loss. It's going to happen. It's This is what's terrible about being a human. You're going to have to deal with loss your whole dang life. <laughs> you're going to yeah. lose people. You're going to lose things. You're going to lose dreams. I mean, you're going to be dealt loss after loss your whole life. So try to talk about it like it is a normal part of life and not like it's this rare thing that is a secret. So that's number one. Pay attention to how you're just like mentioning it casually. Second, with kids, don't be scared. (laughs) Don't be afraid. It is natural to be curious about death and grief and how did grandpa die and you know what like what do you mean the do- like the dog was sick what 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 did the dog die of that's curiosity and answer those questions now as a parent and depending on the age of your child you know you don't have to be fully graphic with your descriptions but like for example like if um if grandpa dies and grandpa got sick what's important there like this is maybe more of a practical tip like if you tell your child grandpa died cuz he was sick Well, what can happen is your child in the future may get sick and have to stay home from school and be like, am I going to die? Instead, (laughs) what you would say about grandpa is, well, grandpa got sick, which is maybe true, um, and his heart gave out because he was old. You don't have to worry about that because your heart is young and you can get sick, but it's not going to be at all like what happened with grandpa because you're young. You know, that is giving complete and accurate information um, in a way that that a child can kind of understand and they can get they can like understand why grandpa died. Um, sometimes parents will be too vague 
by just being like, oh, she she was sick. But then, you know, what's a kid going to do? They're going to be like, oh, my God, every time I get sick, I might be dying. So things like that are helpful. Absolutely. And when you were saying that, Cole, it, it made me think as well, like having that true statement that it, that is like patently truth is so good to flesh out for kids. Because like you say, just saying, oh, I got sick and then died. But actually then going that step further and saying, but don't worry, you know, if you get sick, it, it, it's a different type of sickness. So it's not something. And, and so they've got that sort of in the back of their head. So mm-hmm. it, it's like a, a, a truth written in the computer rather than, you know, just like having to join the dots themselves. And I think that's the that's a large part of the problem, isn't it? We tend to skip bits out or have a euphemism for something yeah. and not use even the right language. Yes. Like, I mean, what, what's your thinking around the actual language we use around this? Um, I am a huge fan and supporter, and a lot of the research that we have supports this. Um, you know, if grandpa died, you need to say grandpa died. You need to say not grandpa went to sleep. Because now, well, what does that mean? Sometimes you can go to sleep and be dead, you know? Um, so just using direct language, like, don't make it bigger than it is. <laughs> Sometimes I yeah. I get these messages into my website where it is a lot of times from parents who are like, um, we told our daughter what happened to grandma, and now she's like this big basket case. Um, and it oftentimes originates from something really innocuous, like saying that, you know, grandma went to with the Lord instead of saying grandma died um, because then it's like well if your kid is being raised in a religious home and you're telling them to pray well they may be afraid to pray now because they don't want to go be with the Lord because they want to stay with mom and dad they don't want to go wherever this mystery place that grandma is you didn't know that you could get like raptured like that and just <laughs> taken away so yeah just be just just say it just rip the bandaid off. Just say it what it is. And also as a parent, I think it's important to, if you are not able to speak clearly and directly about what happened, you need to take a break. You need to like find your, your inner strength, take a moment so that you can come back and have that conversation with your child with, and while you're able to leave behind and leave out of the room your own fears. Because it is normal for moms and dads to have fears about the person that they lost, they're navigating with the, they're, they're, they're dealing with their own loss and then having to then also tell a child. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff going yeah. on at once. So, yeah. yeah. There's, there's definitely that side of the fence when you're talking about, say, an older relative, like when you say that the in time sort of um, loss, yep. whereas I can't even imagine what it's like when one of you as a couple yep. have to tell kids and, and talk through it. And, and you've worked with so many people in this sort of mm-hmm. situation. What are some of the things you've seen that have been a, a, a good way to broach that or, you know, some of the pitfalls to avoid if, if it's like one of you? Um, that has to sort of broach this subject and or prepare for the the dying phase if someone's got like terminal cancer or something like that. Okay, so let's say that you have like a family unit and Aunt Cole has cancer and is term like you know this, this is going to be the thing that Aunt Cole dies from. I think it's always important to tell the truth because that is what trust, especially within a family unit, is built upon. Okay, so ultimately navigating loss is an opportunity for a family to become stronger or any of our relationships to become stronger. It's through the difficult parts of life that the most glue is built between us. It's what bonds us together. It's what instantly connects us. But it feels really uncomfortable. 
when you have someone who is dying and you have an impending death and what's difficult about that is you don't know what day, right? You can't like plan for it. And that adds a strong layer of stress usually into the family unit or into the person that is navigating this. There's something called anticipatory grief, which is what people who know someone that they love is going to die, they start to experience it right away. And it's really not different than grief grief. The brain doesn't like have light settings of grief. Like you're, it's, a, it's a light <laughs> switch. It's like you're grieving or yeah. you're not. A lot of people yeah. with dealing with anticipatory grief, they don't realize that, no, it's just full-on grief that you're dealing with. We just in, Anticipatory grief, th- this is a clinical term from a clinical environment. But like for regular people, you and me, it's just grief. And so what happens when you're grieving? You need to ask yourself this. Everybody grieves differently. And it helps to just witness in yourself or your kids that this behavior outburst, this shift here is probably connected to the grief that is already happening. Many times things can feel easier. They can just seem a little bit easier or smoother when everybody accepts that they're already grieving instead of what sometimes we do. We try, we're like, we don't want this person to die. So we're like in denial and we're just doing everything we can to be like, it's fine. Nope, she's fine now. She's not dying right now. I mean, she went on a walk today. And sometimes it's, you have to tell the truth to yourself. And you have to believe the yeah. truth to yourself first. And and that whole grieving thing as well. When you talk about it being anticipatory grief, like before mm-hmm. the act, I mean, I, I've been, we've all been through that process. <clears throat> and it's really hard. Like it can be really, really hard. Yes. And, and to to recognize that it it can crop up any time as well and yes. so it could literally be fine one day and really in a pit of despair the next day and yes. things like that it's uh, uh, do you have any sort of are there what are what are ways that we can actually talk about grief with the kids as well or, or even ourselves how can we come to terms with grief because there's so many different views around grief and what it is and how to handle it or at least what to expect yep. and normalize what are, what are your thoughts Cole Regarding grief, um, probably something that's helpful to share is one of the most common, like, incorrect things that is still taught about grief and then, like, what current research, you know, how, how, how we understand grief today from more of a scientific perspective. So back in the day, um, probably, like, your parents' generation or your grandparents' generation, they were taught that grief is an emotion, that grief is a feeling. Grief is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. Happiness is a feeling. Sadness is a feeling. Um, desperation, despair, hopelessness, those are feelings. Grief is not a feeling. If you say, I'm grieving, I could say, well, what are you feeling today? I'm feeling sad today. I'm feeling kind of hopeful. I'm feeling, okay, so number one, grief is not an emotion. Grief itself, the definition, grief is a response to loss. So, Grief happens and it's your reaction and you don't have control over what, how that looks for you in your body, in your mind. You have no control over what it looks like in your kids. And there are six um, categories where we'll call them like symptoms appear or signs. Um, I, the, the word symptom was accurate, but like there's, there's a bit of an argument with the word symptom because Grief is not a disease. It's not an illness. So a symptom doesn't really make sense because there's nothing wrong with you. It is normal to grieve a loss. So anyway, just putting that out there. 
So there are yeah. six. So some, uh, something that will be evident when you're going through yes, the grieving yes. response. <laughs> yeah. And I just like to say that because I don't want anyone to ever think that something is wrong with you or you have to like, it's not an illness. So there's no cure. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, you're, you're yeah. going to grieve this the rest of your life and it's whatever it is. And it's going to appear at weird times that take you by surprise sometimes. Once the grief switch flips, it's always going to be accessible to you throughout your life. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. But okay, so the six categories of grief, of the grief response. Emotions, that's one category. There's emotional symptoms, physical symptoms, spiritual symptoms, social, cognitive, and behavioral. There are six categories. So emotional symptoms are obviously the things that we feel. And feelings are temporary. So even when you have the most intense feelings for your kids too, it's like a thunderstorm thunderstorms pass over us so sometimes people get really afraid that they're that this feeling is never going to dissipate it's just like a thunderstorm sometimes they're long and they, they're nasty but sometimes they're short spiritual symptoms are common and the other thing here with these six categories is you are going to favor one or two or a few categories and you will see a pattern in yourself across your whole life your kids and your spouse or your partner will probably not mirror you. And this is a cause of issues in families. Like I remember being in um, when I was doing some work with hospices, like being in the room with a dying person. And then, the, you know, there's like multiple kids there, like siblings, adult siblings. And I remember um, in this one case, um, a daughter was really upset at her brother because he hadn't cried he hadn't expressed any emotion. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Aren't you devastated that mom is dying right in front of us? But his grief response really wasn't emotional. He was having huge physical symptoms. He had lost a ton of weight in a short period of time because um, he had no appetite. So he's dealing with appetite issues. He wasn't able to eat. He wasn't eating. Um, so for him, his grief response was mostly exhibited through physical symptoms. So I say that too. And I, this is the thing for your listeners to think about in your own family is like... <laughs> Who who are the emotional grievers in your family? Who are the physical symptom grievers? For me, when I'm grieving, um, dry lips is a documented um, symptom um, as part of the grief response. And my lips will just be so – they'll immediately dry out and I cannot get a handle on them for like until I'm out of the, the woods of it. So those are the six categories. I don't know if you want me to give you an example in all of them, but <laughs> no, that, well, no, it's great to know. I mean, what the one that sort of jumps out to me is well, the two actually, spiritual and cognitive. What yeah. would those be- look or f- feel like? Okay, so spiritual symptoms, depending on when a major loss in your life happens for the first time, especially if you're like about the age of. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, like teenage years even, um, <laughs> spiritual symptoms can oftentimes show up by being really, I mean, really at any point in your life, who am I kidding? Being angry at God or having these universal questions now, like someone you love dies and then now you find yourself thinking like, why are we here? How did yeah, we end up on Earth? What crisis. is the point? It is. It's it's called existential pain. If you want to Google that and find yeah. some of the science, but those are spiritual symptoms. Many people have crises of faith. They question their life choices and their religious tradition. They feel like, and especially if they believe in God or were taught that God is benevolent. Well, if you lose your child, God is not going to feel very benevolent, right? And so then you can end up with these huge, like it's so uh, it's. It's very painful to go through a spiritual crisis resulting from a loss. It's really rough. So that's like spiritual in a nutshell. And then cognitive symptoms. 
I actually have a good story that I have permission to tell that I'll share with y'all. Pretty often, especially before the pandemic, I would get invited to speak in retirement communities. And I was like, great. Because all these people were getting close to the end and they were like, well, let's just listen to this green haired lady talk about death. This might at least make it interesting, you know, at least. So I was at this amazing retirement community in a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio, in the USA. And the retirement community, like, was designed to look like the 1950s. So you would walk inside this facility and there would be like a little barber shop and it was all like 1950s style. And then there was like a, an ice cream parlor. And then they had a like movie theater that would have been like what you would have gone in to see a matinee in the 1950s. It was like, it was really, it was really cool. Also, one that of the awesome. expensive <laughs> places to spend your golden years. So I was invited in and I was just talking about like, what is thanatology and just kind of a general talk. And at the end, uh, usually people like line up and they want to tell me death stories. So I like, I listen, right? We, we sit and we witness the grief and I love doing that. Well, there was this one older woman. She was in her 80s, and she kept letting everybody go in front of her in the line. And I knew, it's like, she's got a doozy for me. I can just tell. So in my talk, I had talked about the six categories of signs of grief in this to teach, like, well, first of all, you need to know what grief actually is. So she gets up to me, and she goes, you just, you just saved me from a pain I have carried since I was in my 40s. So this woman was oh, from wow. a very, very small town in Ohio, like literally one stoplight, like literally Main Street was just like four corners and it was teeny tiny. She lived there her whole life. Her parents were born and died there. Her grandparents were born and died there. So very rooted in this small town. And obviously it being so small, everybody knew everybody. Everyone knew where everything was in the town. There was no more surprises, right? Everyone just knew everyone's business. So she was. She told me she was in her 40s. She had three kids. She was a stay-at-home mom. And her husband was like the town attorney. And she, her sister died kind of unexpectedly. And it was the day of her sister's funeral, and she and her husband drove separately to her sister's funeral because her husband was the town's attorney, so he wasn't taking the day off. He would have to go right into the office, okay? Went to the funeral. Funeral ends. Husband, they kiss. Husband goes to work, and she's going to go back home and, I guess, make dinner and prep everything for the kids and wait for him to get off the bus and everything, and she got lost on the way home in this town oh, wow. that she had never left. And she told me that it was terrifying. So she pulled over. It's like she knew where she was, but it was like she was in a parallel universe. She was in a gas station, and it was at a time period where you could go into a gas station, and there's an attendant, and say, can you please call, you know, husband's name, the attorney, and the attendant would know the phone number like it was yeah. Google. So she goes in and the attendant was like a friend's kid or something like that, like a 16 year old. And she was like, can you please call my husband? And the kid was like, sure, Mrs. Whatever. So he calls her husband and she's like, I don't know how to get home. And he, her Why? husband was furious. What do you mean? You're like four blocks away from the house. And she starts crying. And this was like, she just buried her sister. So he dry, he leaves the office, is there in like three or four minutes, um, meets her at the gas station, 
drives her home and drops her off and he goes back to work because she was just being, quote, ridiculous. And what happened to her after that was never explained. She kind of got a reputation for having had lost her marbles. She became crazy. She was like, this thing happened. And as the decades went on, this became like one of those little stories that people told about her kind of like behind her back like and then it got passed down to the generations and the grandkids and there was that one day grandma went can you believe it she got lost she could have walked home well we now know with grief research that she was experiencing because she she said that she never really cried when her sister died she didn't really experience that loss that way she was experiencing cognitive symptoms that was a cognitive symptom Sometimes when people are grieving and they're having a lot of these cognitive symptoms, sometimes they feel like they're like, oh, my God, is this like early onset Alzheimer's? You're forgetting things. You're like leaving your purse somewhere and you never leave a purse behind or you leave your cell phone in the refrigerator and that's that's where somebody finds it. That is because your brain is scrambled. Your brain has just had a big part of your life deleted like a death, you know? Or shadow loss. You've had this big thing deleted and your brain is trying to figure out how do we deal with this gap and the brain tries its best, but sometimes it puts us in some funny situations. So that's, that's what I mean when, when, when I say cognitive symptoms and that's what it's, that's the most extreme example I have ever heard in all of my years doing this work as a thanatologist. And I'm so appreciative of this woman because she, she told me, she said, I want you to tell people about this. And I said, I said, I will, I will. So. Now you all know the story. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. So many questions, but I immediately thought, holy smoke, does that mean I'm still grieving? Because I forget things so much. Uh, right, I'm going to have to do a bit of an inventory and just double check. But um, you, you mentioned shadow loss there, Cole. Could you just mm-hmm. describe what that is? Sure. So shadow loss has been the focus of my work as a thanatologist for about 10 years now. A shadow loss is a loss in life, not of life. So shadow losses are things that we grieve that die, but there's just no dead body attached. So some of the most common shadow losses are the death of a marriage, which is divorce or just a relationship ending, Um, getting ghosted. You can grieve the loss of that relationship. Many times when people retire, we like we hype retirement up to be this. Oh my god, you're gonna be retired. You're gonna be like having fancy drinks every afternoon. And a lot of people retire and they are wrecked. They're grieving because it's the death of a part of their identity. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is like, when I retire one day, I'm gonna have to adjust to people describing me as this is Cole. She used to be a thanatologist, you know. And that is really hard for people because then you're left with well, what am I now? And especially if you are from like a Western country where we really place a lot of our identity in our careers, that retirement or losing a job unexpectedly, that full full out can be a shadow loss for people. Now with shadow loss, it is not, this is not a clinic, this is a non-clinical term. You cannot be diagnosed with shadow loss. It is only something you can describe for yourself. Two people can get a divorce. One couple can be like, it's the best thing we ever did and we have a great relationship now another couple could be devastated somebody could have been blindsided and they grieved and you'll hear people say things with whatever the shadow loss is you'll hear people say it would almost be easier if there was a dead body because then there'd be a funeral and then i would have support and everybody would see how wrecked i am and that's a common 
thing that you'll hear with people that are grieving serious shadow losses. So that's shadow loss. And yeah, um, I, mm-hmm. well, it's fascinating because when you were describing it, Cole, it it makes me think of when say someone's someone's married you know they've got these expectations working into the future they they've got a an idea of what the future is going to look like it's this yeah. plan it's how they're going to be like 5 years 10 years whatever that's the, it's almost like a a part of their identity that they see in the future and, and then dies. that's 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 gone that's ripped out that's yep. and you you can imagine there's always like that hole in your whole identity yeah all of a sudden you're blindsided and it's gone. Yeah. So, so it's can... you mentioning like the the death of these future things that you valued and you looked forward to. Like, for example, you know, maybe your in-laws were like amazing at Christmas and they brought the magic of Christmas to you. And that's actually <laughs> something you're really going to miss being able to be around. That's a shadow loss or it can be experienced as a shadow loss. And it happens to a lot of people that have a partner or a spouse and they become widowed because the... So to use clinical language, a primary loss would be the death of your spouse. The secondary loss would be the death of you belonging to this family unit. It would be the death of, you know, having things to do around the holidays. It's the death of that future. All of your future plans that you had for you and your spouse that can no longer be. So the the clinical environment would label it that way. But many times, and, and the this is... I just need to say this because I actually just have been writing about this a lot in my work. But what really frustrates me is the English language has a horrific lack of words for regular people to use to describe their own lived experience related to death and dying. So what we do is we use clinical words that were developed in a clinical environment for the purpose of diagnosing, assessing, and treating people. And what happens is, is people end up sometimes feeling shame around these things. So, for example, if you're in an office with a therapist and the therapist tells you, oh, you know, your wife is dead um, and you grieving over the future together, all of these millions of things that you had planned and lost, that's a secondary loss. Well, you do not have the clinical training behind what that term means. So what's your brain going to do? Your brain's going to be like, well, it's not secondary. I'm living this right now. It's primary yeah. for me. This I'm amongst is the main it. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I just like to point out that just pay attention sometimes to the words that you're using. And if you're borrowing them from doctor's offices, that can sometimes be the reason why it doesn't feel right. And this is part of my work and my research as a thanatologist is I'm trying to develop people words that aren't loaded with the framework of a clinical environment that kind of weighs it down. And shadow loss is part of that. And I think that's why shadow loss has like grown so much worldwide is because it's filling a gap in our language. Yeah. And it's so easy to not realize just how many words are missing. I mean, Douglas Adams, he wrote this book called The Meaning of Lif like decades ago. And and what it was, it was a joke that he had with another writer friend about, oh, what's that word? You know, that word when you sit on a seat and you, you feel the warmth of the seat that's been warmed by someone else's bum. It's mm-hmm. like that really awkward feeling. Yeah. And he said, there's no word in the English lexicon mm-hmm. for that. And and so he, he started coming up with names for these things, like the little piece of paper that you fold and chock under a table to stop it wobbling. There's no name for that thing. And so they started coming up with these words. Okay, who is and, this? And I said, need to look this person up. <laughs> this is amazing. It's Douglas, 
Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, duh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, it's called The Meaning of Lift. But him and his friend realized very quickly that it's really hard to make up names. And so what they started to do, they started to take towns and counties in England, like they'd take a town name and use that and apply it to that thing. And so this insight, this uh, dictionary that he created is all these like town names in England, like Shoebury. And so he used like Shoebury. Shubri is the name, shubriness <laughs> is that feeling you get when you sit on a seat that's been warmed by someone else's bum. And then the, the, the little chock of paper they called a Ludlow after the mm-hmm. town in England called Ludlow. And so it was much easier to borrow town names and apply them to these words than, uh, than just like make it. them up out of, yeah, so yes. ch- check it out. It's, it's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> but I love it because it's true. There's so many things that we have gaps for. We don't have the right word for it and especially with grief and loss related experiences. And so we end up borrowing words from clinical environments and they don't leave us feeling great. Yeah. So. And the whole dying process as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard about, oh, there's the doctor who has a palliative care center in California. I, his name eludes me right now, but he was electrified mm-hmm. and lost one of his hands and both of his feet. And so he then became a doctor and developed this palliative care center that actually celebrates death. And instead mm-hmm. of people being surrounded by like machines that go ping in a very clinical setting, they would actually be in this center where it was more of a festival when someone was dying to celebrate the amazing yes. life they had, all the friends they had. And, you know, there would be flower processions and music and, and, and it just casts a completely different perspective on yeah. this thing that we're all going to experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me ask you a question. Um, what is the difference between living and dying? I don't know yet. There is no difference. It's the same. You can be, you can have a terminal diagnosis and choose. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I get what you mean. So, yeah, or, yeah. You know, I, I, miss, just, I you know, give up. I mean, it's yeah. like um, you gotta. At which do what point you can. do we switch from one to the other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's like going to be a medical definition of dying, you know, or whatever. But for people, for you and me, for regulars, like they're synonyms. And many people feel that the difference between living and dying is living is when you're engaged in your life and you're doing what you can with what you have where you are. And dying is where you're letting life happen to you. And that's really what it is. And that's the way that I view it. And these facilities that are starting to pop up in these programs, like what you referenced globally, actually, is viewing the dying process as an extension of living. And if you're dying, like this is a time for us to see what trouble we can get into, you know, to see what, <laughs> what we want to do. And we have to work with our yeah. limitations. We have to do what we can with what we have where we are. Yeah. But you can still be living while you're dying. Like just because you're dying. Yeah. First of all, we're all dying right now, especially there's different ways. Okay, here's my next question for you. When do <laughs> we start dying? When do we st- what, like when do humans start dying? I want to say like the minute we're born, but I kind of get the feel. I I mean, I instinctively feel that there's like this hump when we're we're growing and developing and then we we hit this sort of flat plateau and then it starts descending. That's kind of what's in my head. Yeah, both of those are correct. There's like a ton of different correct answers to this. There was like a study that was floating around like 10 years ago that was like when you're about the age of 25, because at that point, your body no longer can 
fix issues. And that's when we start to like aging starts. And then also when you're born, my favorite way to answer this question is (laughs) some of the cells that became you were actually existing while your mother was in utero inside your grandmother because it was one of your mom's eggs was you. Yeah. And so yeah, as yeah, long yeah. so you have been on this earth a long time and therefore you have been dying. You start living and you start dying at the same time. Different religious traditions and different cultures will probably be the thing that impacts the way that you answer this question or the way that you see it. But I think it's a really important uh, this is a great question for kids. I mean, why shouldn't this be a yeah, family discussion? That's right. When do you start dying? Or you know, like just just because somebody is sick it's, I think it's important to frame like being sick is not, is normal. Death is normal. So what if we started to facilitate and have space for conversations about like death and dying as a concept or grief as a concept and like, well, when did these things really start? And well, like, what do people from different countries think about this? What do people from different religions like get curious about it? Research shows for people that are dealing with death anxiety, death anxiety is like, um, what it sounds like it's like makes you uncomfortable <laughs> and you don't want to do it Re- what we what research shows is when you spend time learning about death dying grief and loss it reduces your death anxiety yeah so, that makes total sense when you say it yeah. and yet we don't do this yeah, <laughs> what, what society is what society is called do you reckon of a really good handle on this stuff um okay there's something called terror management theory which sounds scary, um, and the Ernest Becker Foundation that has a lot of information on this that I would recommend. Like if you're if you're into Googling and you just want to nose around there, that's that that's a good place to do so. Um, that's probably where I would have people start, and then just Googling death anxiety studies, death anxiety re- re- reduction techniques. You'll, stuff will yeah. pop up. Um, yep. Get curious about it. That's what I'd tell yeah. people. Yeah. Well. It's interesting because I remember hearing you talk about how when you can talk with someone about death, it is actually a a really quick way to become very close with someone as well. In like you can build a very strong rapport with someone, not not in a a fake way, but you can actually become much closer friends when you actually discuss this stuff and you discuss the real stuff, not the sport, not what, not the weather. It's like what you fundamentally feel and experience and think about stuff it's it's deep but we're all going through it yep yep and um this is reminding me of okay so typically when you hit about middle age that is when your peer group like people start dying like of heart attacks and just and all of a sudden you're like oh my god am i old enough now that (laughs) i have friends (laughs) (laughs) things are getting real (laughs) i know regularly yeah um, and you'll also encounter instances where loved ones have a terminal diagnosis and then they're like facing their own deaths. <clears throat> and if you're close to them, get curious about what they're experiencing and ask them like, okay, so you've been told that you're terminal, that you're dying. Do you actually feel like you're dying? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. If they do feel like they're dying, be like, well, what does that feel like for you? You know, if if this is the type of relationship you have, like get curious about it because what you're doing there is you're picking it up and holding it and you're examining it together from a place of being eye to eye. You're not the doctor in the room that feels like sometimes they're talking down to you. There's not a power differential. Get curious about it. Ask them what they're experiencing because they know you're not dying. You know they are dying. So it's not like you need to try to like hide the truth that you're not dying and you're interested in it. 
it's not rude. It's human. And it usually, depending on how your relationship is, it can feel really nice to be able to talk openly about what their experience is actually like. So, And it's it, it, that's great advice, I think, because it's safe in the sense that being curious, you're just asking questions that we're all dying to know anyway, literally, yeah. <laughs> figuratively. But I think it, it, it's so much safer as well. Like you're not going to seem condescending or, oh, you should fight this thing or, you know, you're, you're not giving unsolicited advice, which I can imagine is probably the worst thing to do. Yep. Um, whereas if you're just asking questions purely out of curiosity, there's no end to what you can ask and they'll tell you like, hey, too many questions. I don't want to talk about it yep, right now. Exactly. Well, but it's a it's a it's almost like that's a great frame of mind to approach these things with and i wish i'd asked more questions of Stephen when uh, yeah when i knew that was, he was going through that because i could have learned a ton of stuff and and been there with him yeah yep yeah one of my favorite questions to ask somebody who is like terminal whether they've just found out they're dying and they like don't even realize it yet or you know down the road is i like to ask what is the best unsolicited advice someone is giving you or i'll, or I'll ask like <laughs> what is the best like tip somebody gave you for how not to die from the thing that you've been diagnosed with and um usually that's pretty funny and usually people have great answers and like the thing is it sucks when someone you love dies it sucks and you never want to try to make light of it or like diminish its importance or anything and i hope that my suggestions here aren't coming across like that i'm that's what i'm suggesting but like it's we all are going to die some of us will just get an advance notice. <laughs> Some of us will not. And there's no reason to be precious, like, and like whisper, like, oh my God, you're dying. So now I'm going to either talk really loud to you or whisper when I'm around you. Don't change who you are. Don't try to change who they are. Just pick it up and look at it together. And that will keep you close to each other for sure. Cool. That's so good. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. That's, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Nailed it. Yay, good. Hopefully everybody feels okay. Pleasantly surprised, I promise. When I talk about it, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be sad. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that goes through my mind is I remember being at funerals and and feeling, "Oh my god, oh my god, I'm going to burst out." in hysterical laughter in a minute yes and oh like, my, i do that that happens shit. to me like, yes it's oh, it's yeah. like one of my worst nightmares like what if this happens and you have this worry about i'm going to come across as so insincere and and yet that must happen quite a bit i imagine oh all the time because i don't know one of my uh, a friend of mine um lost her husband really young and they were at his like funeral like they went from like you know like a monday eating dinner to friday she's burying her husband and they were all standing around the casket and she was desperately trying to not break out in laughter because it was just, it's absurd. Like I'm burying my husband. We had like, we had a fight uh, on Monday about the dumbest thing possible and I'm burying him and everyone is staring at us. And like, because then that's really what's happening. It's absurd. The absurdity of death, the absurdity that like your friend can die. Like that just doesn't make any sense. So our brain is like, this is a great time to laugh. Um, but yeah, if you've <laughs> yeah, ever done that, this is my that, default. <laughs> it's normal. You know, it happens. It's happened to me. That's for sure. So, um, but yeah, just the brain trying to make sense of it. <laughs> wow. It just blows a gasket and fires out the side. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so. Wow. Oh, well, I've got so many questions, Carl, but I totally appreciate you've got tons of work to do. So really <laughs> grateful for you taking time with us today and keep doing the good work. 
Thank you for having me. And if anybody would like, I have free resources and I write a weekly column about grief that's free. It's called Grief for Madness. You can find that on my website, colinperry.com. And then I'm really active on Instagram. I'm at Imperry if anybody wants more of this. I provide it for free. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I certainly do, Cole, so uh, keep it up. Thank you so much, Reg. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Cole as much as I did. If you'd like to follow Cole's work or connect with her, I'll put links to her and the things she mentioned in the show notes on the website, thedadmindset.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and leave a review and or comment. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and really helpful. Finally, For podcast updates, please subscribe to the newsletter, which you can find along with all the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's all from me for now. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage.